Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So, movies today, they're garbage. I think we all kind of know that. They're, everything is paused. Everything is wildly left-wing. Everything is incredibly boring and stuffed with the message, and we're all just really tired of it. However, there are gems that still come out, and of course, there are a lot of films throughout Hollywood history that really speak to kind of the right-wing ethos, the kind of world that many people want to build out of the ashes of kind of the clown world that we have today. And so I wanted to talk to my buddy Last Things because he is running a film festival. He interviewed a whole bunch of people, myself included, about some of their favorite movies or TV shows. And he's gotten a good idea of what it looks like to have a good film culture to look at what makes a movie right wing and how we might look at those films going forward. Last thing, thanks for coming on, man. Oren, thank you. It's a it's a pleasure to be uh, on your show once again. And, and thank you again for for participating in the first annual Last Picture Shows Film Festival. Yeah, I've had a lot of fun and, and it's been great to listen to some of my favorites. You know, many people have been guests on this show come on and talk about some of their films. There's there's so many reasons that people picked films. And so it was really fun to kind of dig into wh why people were, were addressing the films that they were looking at. Yeah, absolutely. And I, we, we had a few people, I think two or three who did, um, you included, did uh, elected TV shows as well. You, of course, did Battlestar Galactica. Um which is a, a fan, fantastic show. It's one of our better, um, better, better reviews. I'm still very proud of my thumbnail that I made of um, Admiral, <laughs> Admiral Adama with a word balloon saying, don't make me tap the sign. I think that one will, I'll, I'll get, I'll, I'll make a poster of it and you can hang it up in your, in your studio. Excellent. Yeah. We'll, we'll throw it back and then, you know, replace one of the albums here. All right, guys. Yeah. Well, we're going to dive into the film festival and more importantly, what makes a movie right wing, why right wingers, are drawn to certain movies and what we can kind of draw, what conclusions we can draw from those. But before we do, let's hear a little bit from today's sponsor. These days, it's impossible to thrive with just one job. Between increasing living costs, paying off debts, and planning for the future, things like buying a home, building savings, and even going on vacation can seem like fantasies. If your goal is financial freedom, you could start taking on more hours at your current job, work towards a promotion, or try putting your money into something risky like stocks, cryptocurrencies, or even a side hustle. But at the end of the day, do you really want to sacrifice time and energy that could otherwise be spent with your loved ones or on your hobbies just to make a living? Luckily, you don't have to hustle to reliably make more money. All you have to do is job stacking. Job stacking is the best way for regular people, regular employees, to unleash their earning potential and increase job and financial security. How? By working multiple jobs, but without burning out or more importantly, getting caught by corporate overlords. Job stacking allows you to reliably receive paychecks from multiple employers each month without having to work more than eight hours a day. You don't have to be in tech or any particular field or industry to do it as long as you can work remotely. If you've thought about working multiple jobs, but you're not sure how to start or are afraid of getting caught, get the fundamental job stacking course today and learn all of the secrets on how to sustainably work multiple full-time jobs from the foremost expert on the matter, Rolf Halza, author of Job Stacking. Rolf has worked multiple full-time jobs since 2018, including hybrid jobs, and has condensed all of his experiences and wisdom into a single four-module online course so you can start proficiently job stacking without having to make mistakes, figuring things out on your own, or reinventing the wheel in the process. Go to www.jobstacking.com and enter the promo code ORIN to get a special discount. 
All right. So films are obviously a critical part of any kind of cultural movement here since their inception. There, there are always art forms that are critical to driving culture, but pretty much since the movie has been around, it has been central to any kind of aesthetic movement, any kind of cultural movement that wants to grab the zeitgeist. Now, it, conservatives have notoriously had a difficult time making good movies. And part of that is, of course, the pool of uh, talent available, willing to work with them. Another part of it is the funding, those kind of things. Uh, but also there, there might be something to the, the creative process. We might get into that a little bit as to why that's been so difficult. But I think something just as important to that is developing a culture of being able to analyze and and, and, and critique films. You were talking to me a little bit before we got on as to kind of the modes of that and the way that, that people are looking at that. Obviously, you had a film festival interviewing a bunch of right-wing creators, personalities who are looking at some of their film, films and addressing that. How should people go about or what are some of the main modes when it comes to going about criticizing movies and, and trying to understand what they mean, their strengths and their weaknesses? Uh, absolutely, Oren. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, I, I basically I, I began the film festival by by reaching out to uh, my my hope and intention was to have thirty uh, unique guests review thirty films of, of their choice. I actually wound up with forty, just because some people I, I invited initially didn't get back to me until thirty days later. So you know, it got it got bigger than I anticipated. But my, my instructions for my guests were really, um, you know, you didn't have to pick a movie that you felt was right wing per se. You didn't have to pick a movie that nor, nor did you have to pick a movie that was was left wing and you felt it was was subversive so that we could sort of de deconstruct the propaganda. Um, my only real requirements were that um, you they, they felt like you could have a, an interesting conversation with it for an hour or two. And you felt it was important and significant enough in some way to be to be to be analyzed. Um, and people went a lot of different directions. Uh, I kind of had a running joke <laughs> during the while I was promoting the film festival that you know inviting thirty dissidents to do a film festival, everybody's just going to pick Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. Um, and I did. Uh, we we did have one one guest do Conan the Barbarian, but it was actually a, a really large spread of 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 movies. Some, um, you know, as far back as the the from the 1950s. Some very very contemporary. Some children's films. Um, some foreign films. Some some domestic. So it really did run the the gamut. Um, in terms of what people wanted to discuss and and why people wanted to to discuss films. I think for me, I'm curious to get your, if, if you would agree or, or disagree, Oren, I sort of start with two major kind of categories or approaches when, when it comes to film criticism. Um, the first one I, I could maybe, I, I could, I can contrast it to kind of Thomas Carlyle, which would just be like the, the great man theory of cinema. This is what gets commonly referred to. Um, it, as auteur cinema. And I mean, we, we think of auteur cinema, you might think of something like, um, like Wes Anderson, something that has a very sort of unique, distinct visual style. That's auteur cinema. There's just a very specific kind of flavor to, to a movie. Um, and that's certainly true, but I, I think at a, at a deeper level for me, auteur cinema just means 
a director that has sort of complete control over their their film in that it is saying what they want it to say and they are not uh they're not beholden to power in any way this is not a regime film this is not propaganda that you've been hired to produce um and the the author is in some ways a typical auteur director is somebody who's often at, at odds with power or at odds with the regime and their their film which they maintain control over um has their voice their 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 message their their sentiments within it um and that i mean you know this is the the kind of films that people call films right mm. although i don't think it has to necessarily be art house to 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 qualify in this first kind of category where you're just going to talk if you're going to review a great film your job is to help people understand why it's great and why the the director was able to execute on their vision right so that's my my first kind of bucket my second bucket is um what I've come to refer to as sort of the, the accidental genius. And to be quite honest, you know, if you're asking the question, you know, how to survive, um, you know, the, the, the current, the current year um, with the, the dearth of kind of truly original um, films, you know, one way is to look for the accidentally, uh, right-wing messages um sometimes movies that are are very obviously and transparently kind of left-wing and are being being produced and manipulated by by power by the a sort of framework instantiated by a political regime can accidentally um reveal very right-wing messages or um or have kind of interesting right-wing themes unbeknownst to themselves you know they might have left-wing characters and right-wing characters and you're supposed to identify with the the progressives and despise the right-wingers and then the right-winger actually winds up being the most kind of noble and sympathetic uh <laughs> character on screen so yeah. i think yeah, there I think are genres but but those are kind of my two main ways that i i frame or i approach film criticism yeah, I think a lot of people could identify the, the second one pretty often, right? There are these truths that if you're just observing the world and you're putting it on film, you have to be very careful not to communicate certain aspects of reality, because if you do, they might reveal the truth, right? So you're slathering everything in propaganda. But if you go ahead and put certain things on film, uh, that even if you're, if you're trying to be subversive, something classic like about this is like, Starship Troopers, which is supposed to be a farce. It's supposed to be a subversion of the Heinlein novel. It's supposed to be showing how ugly, you know, or, you know, he, the uh, Paul Vanderhoven thought it was, you know, a fascistic novel. It isn't, but, right. but either way, you know, he's trying to portray it as something awful. And it turns out if you put a bunch of really good looking people doing heroic things, um, you know, and like banding <laughs> together to fight for a cause, uh, that actually is just the aspirational desire of every 15 year old boy. And so it actually just becomes, you know, the, the, the secretly based movie. So I think a lot of people can, can recognize that phenomenon for sure. It, it, yeah. Yeah. That's a great, that's a, that's a great and a, and a classic example. And l lucky for me, the, um, the messaging when I saw Starship Troopers probably as like a teenager went completely and utterly over my head. Um, 
it, it is interesting. And I guess one kind of cohort of films that I, I noticed, uh, I'd say that the one of the largest groups of films, there were, were a lot from the 90s. And that, that may just be a result of having invited a lot of millennials to participate in, in the film festival. But mm -hmm. there are a lot of films, you probably have these in your own life or in where, you know, you may have watched them as a younger man or, or growing up and just kind of enjoyed them or, or took them to be kind of superficial entertainment. But then you, when you return to them uh, after the veil has been lifted or you've had certain kind of political epiphanies, uh, they, they, they land very differently <laughs> for you. And there were a number of, of, of films that, um, that have that kind of accidental genius quality. Um, you know, a few that come to mind that people interrogated were, um, Shock a Lot, that's a movie with Juliette Binoche from the early 2000s. Um, a more, one of the more contemporary films was Everything Everywhere All at Once. Um, a lot of accidentally uh, uh, interesting things were said in that film about kind of multiculturalism, despite its, its, its intentions. Um, so I think a lot of people were having that uh, revisiting films that they even maybe had a certain sentimentality for and nostalgia for, but land very differently now. Another one, um, uh, Aristophanes, one of my guests, uh, reviewed The Postman, uh, mm. which was kind of a classic 90s action movie, um, which I remember watching as a teenager without with as little self-reflection as I did Starship Troopers, but um, returning to it now, it is, it is, I, all I can say is that, you know, Kevin Costner earned that the Hick Lib meme um, <laughs> way before he did Yellowstone. It was all there in the nineties with the postman. So, I mean, he did dances with wolves. So I, if you can't, if you can't pick it up there, then I don't know what to tell yeah. you, but yeah, no, it, it is interesting yeah, because of course, like you said, we look at these films and in the 90s is an interesting time because obviously we, we like to think we like to think of all of these films kind of previous to the woke era as more based, right, or more, you know, more grounded in reality. And of course they were, but they were subversive for their time, too. Right. In many ways, we're, we're projecting back our. We're thinking, oh, well, my my version of liberalism from the 90s was fine. You know, th this is when things were still you could still say things or, or or even, you know, the 70s or something. But those movies were, of course, subverting orders that existed before them. So it's kind of this continue continuous train of like when you feel like enough truth could have gotten through. But I feel like the 90s, there was a break, of course, uh, where, I, where I feel like the 90s is the last time where the there was at least this allusion to neutrality. And so I think mm. you still have a lot of those films, like you said, of, of course, part of it is this, the demographic you're inviting to have that discussion, but there's also certainly a shift where it feels like kind of post this era, we, we need to, we need to inject things into all of this. You, you had less opportunity to accidentally, you know, make certain statements, but, but even in those films, it's still a large amount of people trying to force a particular agenda across it, it just it just didn't have to enter into every form of entertainment at every opportunity right yeah right well 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 said Oren. i certainly did have this i i it's funny i i think i had this i had more pride in the 90s and 90s cinema 
before I began the film festival. I was like, <laughs> you know, back in the 90s, they never did this. I remember my old movies. I'm going to go back and watch them. Oh, no. Oh, no. oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh I didn't remember that. <laughs> so it did It did kill some of my darlings um, to go back and, and kind of um, revisit revisit a lot of films. But, you know, another part of 90s nostalgia that came up in a lot of the movies was um, not just uh, the cinema itself, but a, a lot of films that kind of depicted this just kind of normal middle American suburban uh, middle-class culture. Um, yeah, I, I did uh, one of our mutual friends that you've had on your channel, Zero HP Lovecraft uh, chose, chose Groundhog Day. And one of the things that we wound up discussing for a while about that movie was actually just not even the like, you know, weird metaphysics of the film as much as just Puxatawney, this tiny sort of Pennsylvania town. Um, it's not something you see in, in movies anymore. And, you know, part of that just might be because these towns themselves are like, you know, dealing with the opioid crisis or, you know, industry has collapsed, but it's just strange to see, to go back and watch some of these films where there seems like this wholesome uh, local economy and high trust suburban towns. You know, I can't really recall the last time I saw something like that in a, a contemporary film. Or if, it, or if I did, it was like, you know, ironic or something to be deconstructed. Right. Yeah. That, that's the thing is that nothing will put you off the myth of progress quite so quickly as like moving through different decades of entertainment and recognizing the, the norms that have been completely stripped away. You know, just just the fact that, yeah, of course, you have a, a nice town with intact families. Or, you know, the, the dad's able to work. The mom's able to stay home. This this isn't the the 1950s this is still the 90s where there, there's uh, these options still exist for people you, you'd still expect to have to know your neighbors and and have a functional church and and those kind of things mm. that just aren't aren't going to exist later on in in your media unless like you said they're about to be deconstructed by the people involved that's actually something i wanted to ask you about too you mentioned earlier you know that kind of you have your auteur filmmakers and then you kind of have like your more your popcorn movies and the auteur can can work against the regime because they have the level of control necessary but the the film or rather the kind of the popcorn movies they have to be almost accidentally subversive because they're, they're playing to more of the crowd and they have more of the studio involvement and so when, when they happen to be based or right wing it's a little more of an accidental situation but i wanted to dive a little bit more into the auteur phenomenon because I think more and more that the, the ability of auteurs to do the very thing you're describing has fallen away. And so, so I wanted to touch on it in a second, but before we do, guys, let's hear a little bit about ISI. Universities today aren't just neglecting real education. They're actively undermining it, and we can't let them get away with it. America was made for an educated and engaged citizenry. The Intercollegiate Studies Institute is here to help. ISI offers programs and opportunities for conservative students across the country. ISI understands that conservatives and right-of-center students feel isolated on college campuses and that you're often fighting for your own reputation, dignity, and future. Through ISI, you can learn about what Russell Kirk called the permanent things, the philosophical and political teachings that shaped and made Western civilization great. ISI offers many opportunities to jumpstart your career. They have fellowships at some of the nation's top conservative publications like National Review, The American Conservative, and The College Thinker. 
If you're a graduate student, ISI offers funding opportunities to sponsor the next great generation of college professors. Through ISI, you can work with conservative thinkers who are making a difference. Thinkers like Chris Rufo, who currently has an ISI researcher helping him with his book. But perhaps most importantly, ISI offers college students a community of people that can help them grow. If you're a college student, ISI can help you start a student organization or a student newspaper or meet other like-minded students at their various conferences and events. ISI is here to educate the next generation of great Americans. To learn more, go to ISI.org. That's ISI.org. All right, so uh, kind of the auteur movies, like you said, they they have the ability, at least at one time, to kind of break away from the mainstream. They're getting to say something, craft a message. It's not just there for entertainment, though obviously that's a critical part of it, but their ability to not have to take notes from the studio, to not be a, a movie by committee, to not have that massive, hey, I better get a you know $300 million or something at the box office means that they, they kind of get to make a singular vision and carry that through. And that, that gives them a, a certain degree of separation from the powers that be. Now, obviously, back when the powers that be were, you know, probably more, it's still, you know, subversive, but a little more, you know, conservative, at least with what could be allowed by the culture, that meant that the auteur filmmaker could could break the boundaries of, I don't know, Reagan-esque, you know, censorship or or that kind of thing. That's what they would have thought of as as kind of being outside of the boundaries. But today it feels like it's increasingly difficult for an auteur filmmaker to even break free of that stuff, the kind of the the political correctness, even inside those films, because it's so critical to them even ascending to the point at which they would be allowed to make a movie like that where they would have that kind of freedom. Can you think of some more recent auteur films that really got to break from kind of the, the, the message and, and do something that may have been a little more right wing today? Oh boy. Yeah. It's a tough, that's a really tough qu question Orin. And I should, I mean, I should mention too, you know, just, just because a, a, a film really is, is an auteur film. It's, it's no guarantee that, um, that, that they will be right wing. Although yeah. I do, um, and we can circle back to this at some point. I do. I'm, I'm, I'm one of these people who is a great skeptic about the idea that, you know, all the great artists are, are left wing and somehow, uh, you know, art or, or movies is, is a deficit of, of, of the right. We, we can dive into that. I, somebody asked me this question recently and I, I hate to, um, kind of say it and I hope it doesn't sound like a dodge, but, you know, a lot of the different countries, different nations, different areas of the world kind of have their own their own renaissances or their own periods where certain art forms kind of flourish. Uh, you know, the novel is is something that kind of traveled from from France to Russia and kind of traveled across Europe and gave us different periods of of, of masterpieces. And I will say that I think Korea, Korean cinema right now, Korean cinema has always been very interesting, but um, I think that they've been going through a bit of a um, a kind of golden era um, with films like uh, Parasite, or it's a bit old at this point, but Old Boy, that's another mm -hmm. film that got um, discussed uh, during this festival. So I, I, I have to say, you know, if people go abroad, they might have an easier time trying to find things that have have greater freedom. I mean, there are real kind of maverick filmmakers like David Lynch, who uh, or or Terrence Malick, 
who uh, neither of whom I would consider to be left wing, by the way, I think they would they would be um, an example I would offer as counterexamples to to needing to be left wing to be an artist um, who I think get a lot of private funding for their movies. Um, I think they have to struggle to to, to pull their films off. Um, uh, and it, it takes a very long time for them to kind of gather the, the necessary resources. Um, but I can't say that there's anybody that's just absolutely working outside of the system that's that's crushing it. I don't know if you have anybody in mind. Um, no, I, I, w- I was just interested to pick your mind on that because I, I was thinking, so there are two directors that are not outside the system at all because they're making giant blockbusters but mm. seem to consistently make blockbusters that don't fit into the Hollywood narrative that come to mind. And that would be Christopher Nolan and, yep. uh, and Villeneuve. I forget how to say his yeah. name properly, but, but I thought it was interesting that both of the, uh, two of Villeneuve's uh, recent, recent movies were reviewed during your film festival. The, the, uh, uh, the the new dune movie of course and then um i'm trying to say cyberpunk but it's not cyberpunk i don't know why i can't oh blade runner blade runner thank you 2049 yeah but the the thing that gave birth to cyberpunk but but yeah blade runner 2049 both of these movies certainly have left-wing themes you know they they you could speak about ecology or uh you know different different uh you know maybe feminist aspects in in uh, blade runner but it's very interesting that both of these films, while having massive budgets, you know, being huge blockbusters with huge amount of tension to them, don't seem to sit quite right when it comes to the message. You know, they, they seem to be bringing a different feel. I don't know what his his personal politics are, but he seems to be choosing stories over and over again that that brings something that doesn't quite fit into the framework of kind of the left-wing message inside, which should be, you know, basically, you know, popcorn blockbusters. Yeah, no, that's, 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 that's very true. Um, I think that, uh, um, Astral, who's, who's the, the guest that discussed Blade Runner 2049, I think this kind of fits into one of these categories that I, I call the, the literally me category. A lot of people pick films because they, they thought this really epitomized our, our current cultural moment. And um, Ryan Gosling in that film as this sort of um, completely and utterly atomized man. Um, and granted, he's a he's a replicant. He's not quite a human. But um, of course, Ryan Gosling has been memed uh, into probably more than any other human being into uh, 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 right wing memes. A lot of those those stills of of Gosling are from. Uh, Blade Runner 2049. So I think that film does approach that in an interesting way. And it's, I think what might allow it to get away with that is the fact that it is this sequel to an, an earlier movie. And it's still very much its its own, its own film. Although I think a lot of the same kind of tone and imagery um, can be traced back to, to, to Blade Runner. But the fact that it's kind of a, a sequel might have opened the door for that a little bit. Um, in terms of Christopher Nolan, I know that this is also, you know, Bane is, I guess, a more passe meme nowadays. <laughs> but um, I, I think people talk endlessly about the the bat the the Nolan Batman trilogy, um, which I, I don't know if you have thoughts or opinions on it. 
Um, I think I, I heard it described once as, uh, and I think I agree with this as sort of a, a neocons, uh, a neocon fantasy in that, um, Batman is sort of this neocon figure where you have these, the, the three villains like Ra's al Ghul, the Joker and Bane as these much more sort of, um, aristocratic and reactionary characters, um, going up against this, this more kind of, I don't know, classic conservatism in Batman. And it does seem to me that everybody, for all three of those movies, people talk more about the the villains and kind of find them more, more memorable and and compelling. And, you know, that may be the case kind of like in, in paradise lost where like, you know, Lucifer gets the best lines in the poem, but, um, but yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I, I think people are more mesmerized by, the villains in that trilogy than they are necessarily Batman and often his sort of overcoming of, of both the villains themselves, as well as their, their philosophy or their sort of moral, moral problems that they're putting before Batman as the defender of Gotham. I don't think he necessarily has an answer for them. Right. Um, that, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, he flies never... in in the last five minutes and like jump kicks them and they, and, and wins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it feels it, it's a good point because it feels like in all of those movies, yeah, they are presenting this uh, this worldview. And it is interesting that all three of those villains in one way or another do have a, a more reactionary understanding of, of kind of the, the problems that are facing Gotham and the solutions that should be applied. And he is always just kind of bringing this like good shepherd like, well, yeah, but I can probably just, you know, I have to do some things that they don't that they don't like. But otherwise, you know civilization can more or less kind of putter along the way that it's supposed to. And it's my job to kind of, kind of keep these people afloat. And, and in every one of those scenarios, even though they're, you know, framing him, you know, these really difficult questions of kind of what civilization should be and, and whether it's worthy of Gotham to continue and those kind of things, he never answers those questions. Yeah. It's, it's always just very much like, well, yeah, but also like, you're wrong. And so, you know, or you have to trust me on this or something. And then, yeah, just some, some bad device solves the problem and we move on. Christopher Nolan is one of those um, mysteries to me though, because I can never tell how, how self-aware he is. I mean, maybe he's somebody that I kind of have to place in in a gray zone. I I can't say that I think he's, he's necessarily this, um, you know, cunning genius and this, you know, the, the manner in which we're discussing and describing Batman was his, his blueprint all along, or if these are just things that kind of snuck into the, to the films on their own. Yeah. But I mean, the accidental base thing, right. Has to be, has to be part of that, no matter what, when you're going to be discussing, cause, cause Nolan due to his kind of auteur background, you know, back when he's making memento and, and things like mm-hmm. that, he's, he can't just go in and, you know, have Batman like break out the bat credit card like you're not going to have that you know (laughs) that level of schmaltz and so like he's got to try to say something in these movies but like what does batman say you know and Mm. there's really no i don't think there's a way to you know to kind of bring his interaction with those villains in without having to address questions that that are fundamentally going to bring a certain based worldview at least on screen even if that that worldview gets you know defeated by a random explosion and in you know nothing else yeah. you're gonna have to entertain some of those questions if you want your movie to go beyond like 
Arnold Schwarzenegger telling everyone to chill. And so I think that, that that's kind of like why that ends up being the case, even if even if that's not his master plan to communicate some you know subversive base message. I just think it's once again impossible for certain aspects of reality to break through when you're discussing that character. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, but no, you. I mean, I think Villeneuve and uh, Nolan are, are definitely two of the more interesting um, directors at work currently. Um, I mean, I think Villeneuve is French Canadian, so I can't say they're domestic directors. Yeah, uh, but uh, but their stuff is is worth worth examining. Um, you know, I think another a lot of films that are are actually older still were selected because people felt like they had something to say about our our current moment. Uh, T. R. Hudson selected um, The Searchers, which is uh, probably John Ford's classic Western. Um, I would say John Ford exhibit number, number three for, you know, directors do not have to be lefties. (laughs) He's pretty. And David Lynch actually played him in the Fablemans. Uh, He, 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 guest starred as as john ford in that recent um uh biopic about steven spielberg's childhood but um that that movie's from the the late 50s um it's probably the most famous western um but i think part of why tr hudson chose it is that he kind of felt like a lot of um men with right-leaning sensibilities find themselves in in a circumstance very similar to, to ethan john wayne's character in that film um sort of trapped between in, in this kind of liminal liminal space between civilizations, you know, he's not quite at home in within civilization, nor is he necessarily part of the, the wild um, and uh, kind of caught between nature and, and culture. And uh, I think that film, despite being almost at what, 70 years old, practically, uh, was a very interesting film to 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 use as kind of a lens to consider kind of current issues. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, so, so much of the western of course is that contrast it's that uh, you know a guy who's out on the prairie or or you know somehow you know on the trail cutting cutting a way of life for himself or uh, you know that otherwise wouldn't be able to exist inside of civilization and then civilization kind of catching up with him. This is the story of course, of like the man who shot Liberty Valance or, mm. or Deadwood or, you know, like any, any of these classic Westerns, this is, this is a theme that I think is, is, is pretty baked into the, uh, the genre itself. And it's interesting because you wonder if that genre, you know, I mean, of course they still make Westerns today. Uh, much of the Western just played out due to the, the, you know, the glut of them. It was the comic book movie of the day. Many people have made that, that kind of connection between those those two genres that there's just so so much that it burned out but you also wonder if it's that you know you're no longer allowed to let young men kind of see a, a space in which they you know would not enter into kind of the longhouse right would not enter into yeah. the domain <laughs> of, of civilization where there, there is an existence and men would find it preferable like they could, of course could have stayed you know, in the East, they could have stayed in large cities. They could have stayed in a domestic life, but they would rather, you know, sleep on a bedroll out somewhere, in, you know, in, in the West, uh, you know, because that, that was worth the kind of the, uh, their independence and, you know, being able to 
to kind of find themselves in that way. Maybe that doesn't, or, you know, maybe people afraid of showing that to young men anymore, or that wouldn't appeal to young men anymore, or that. Well, you, you have to have sort of a strong masculine male protagonist mm-hmm. in order to do that. And that's something I, that's something else I, I a theme that I, I picked up on a lot of films were kind of lamenting or, you know, commenting on the fact that, you know, when is the last time that you just, you know, there was a, a male character, a male protagonist who was just sort of fundamentally masculine and a female character that is, is fundamentally feminine. You know, one, one film that was discussed was the princess bride as sort of the, the paragon of that, um, that mode where you just have, um, you know, Wesley, who's, object is the princess and he's he's trying to rescue her and and she sort of um it affects her environment in ways that are are quintessentially feminine but there was this kind of lament for you know what you could just even if it's not a true western um but like a, a lament for the the cowboy which is the kind of the most iconic sort of resourceful stoic um stalwart male hero um, it's funny there, I mean, there were a few Westerns, uh, that got selected. I, uh, I've, I designed a few, uh, awards that I was describing to you at one point, Oren, um, which I'm, I'm tentatively calling the froggies. One of the awards is, ca- is called the Doppelfilmer award and the Doppelfilmer award will be, I have not announced who has won this yet, but I can tell you, this is one of the nominees hands down is basically like somebody who selected a film, which where, where the film is essentially their, their spirit animal. Like yeah. if everybody if everybody wrote down on the, on a three by by far, five card what film is that guy gonna pick, and then they'd show it to him and they'd all get it right. Um, and one guy you you're probably aware of of Lafayette Lee, big mm-hmm. uh, big Twitter personality, great guy, and he picked the murder of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Um, beautiful auteur film, by the way, gorgeous to gorgeous to watch. But of course, I mean, like your, his name's Lafayette Lee. what movie what movie was is the man going to choose if not the murder of jesse james um yeah no it's definitely interesting the way that the the films or the things that people selected kind of reflect on them uh of course uh you know and and like you said that i've had lafayette on uh, many times and yeah it's hard to imagine a film more fitting uh for him to select than that one yeah yeah although to be i i also created an award which i've i've my tentative name for it is, is, is the Janus award because the Janus is two faced and the Janus award, it goes to somebody who gave me like a complete and total curveball. So like, for example, zero HP Lovecraft, I assume we were going to be talking about like aliens or, or event horizon or some, um, you know, Italian horror film. And he picked groundhog day. So <laughs> well, sometimes I, they surprise you. Yeah. I listened to that one and I liked the way he said that he said, you know, I I don't, despite, you know, being a fan of horror and writing horror, I don't actually consume a lot of it because it's, you know, pe- it feels like people who uh, kind of make an intentional horror movie, uh, they are, they're taking the easy way out. They're just putting it on their nose as where if you make a normal movie, like part of the, the process is revealing the kind of everyday horrors that exist in mm. yeah, inside a comedic experience or something like that. And of course, Groundhog Day is a great example of that because it's, you know, yeah, in one in one way it's it's funny and everything. In another way, it's a man reliving like the worst parts uh, and the most mundane and like devastating parts of life it is literally yeah. like lives of quiet desperation for eternity, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I get, and yeah, he did have maybe a, a grim, a grim, dark take on the movie, in in hindsight. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, Zero HP Lovecraft is a very interesting figure too because he's 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 this contradiction. I, I used to think that in order to be a good horrorist, you had to be somebody that that like wanted to kill themselves, but he's actually you know quite um, uh, very much a vitalist, and yet writes fantastic horror fiction. Um, do you feel do you feel like horror does require something because uh, you know I'm again far from the first person to say this but you know horror being kind of an innately right-wing genre because mm. it, the dynamics require an us versus them that the the unknown and the outside is the danger but also because it constantly puts people in things like physical danger with where they can't have like magical, you know, uh, comic book powers. And so like men have to actually be physically stronger. Women are genuinely in uh, a disadvantage. You know, a, a killer can get away with, you know, stabbing a bunch of people simply because it's a man and they're women in, in this, in a scenario, mm. like just, just, just dynamics that require you to kind of acknowledge truths about biology, truths about, good and evil truths about the world that otherwise you know you they're just the genre is dependent on them in the way that it doesn't exist for other movies i think that's i i, I agree with everything you just said Oren. and i remember i remember a, a tweet that you put out a little while ago where i think you you mentioned something to the effect of like horror seems like this one like sort of the last redoubt when it comes to film genres where it's it's very hard to corrupt horror like how do you make a like what 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 does what does a woke horror movie look like um i think something i think this it's e michael jones who who said this um in his book um nightmares from the id but but his i guess his theory of horror what he proposes is that horror is always about returning to baseline in that a horror film happens when somebody has committed a taboo Right. Think of, I mean, the classic example here is, you know, all these teenagers become sexually curious and then Freddy Krueger jumps out mm-hmm. and um, uh, scares them back into, into, into chastity. But um, it is some sort of kind of cultural line, something sacred has been uh, crossed, some sort of tradition has been um, dis- disrespected. And this is often kind of the, the catalyst or the primary um element of a horror film and i think it's because progressivism is just kind of in favor of transgression i think it's very difficult for them to kind of uh colonize horror films the way that they may have colonized other kind of film genres um there there is just something strangely traditional about about horror movies and that may may sound kind of strange and counterintuitive to people because often horror has like the most grotesque kind of imagery right (laughs) to to call it like the most traditional genre maybe seems uh seems counterintuitive but i I do think there is something something to that that it is fundamentally right-wing i i thought i would get more horror horror movies um the one real true horror movie i did was with um with Tyler Hamilton, he chose Exorcist three, mm. um, which uh, uh, well, people will have to 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 listen to it. But he's a he's a um, excellent reviewer of of, of horror films. Um, but his yeah, and unfortunately, his his YouTube channel got um, 
shut down unexpectedly, but I think uh, I'm not sure where people can, can find his, his work at the moment. Well, one place is your film festival. So that's, yes. that's the, the first place they can start. Are there so interesting, you know, interestingly, you kind of mentioned earlier that you aren't really on board with the idea that the left has all of the talent and the, you know, the right just can't make movies. And I, I wonder if we can expound a little bit on that. I think in some ways you might touch on, you know, the, you just mentioned that most people would look at what might be the most conservative genre horror movies, but say, well, this isn't for conservatives though, because, you know, probably can't watch it with your kids. You, you know, the many aspects of, the movie are, are, you know, gross or subversive or in certain ways, you know, the, the content is explicit in certain ways. Mm. And so therefore it's not thought of as a conservative genre. Is it, is it the content of possibly more conservative genre that keeps the right out of these areas? What do you, what do you think is, you know, wh why would you say that the right, you know, isn't at a disadvantage and what do you think it is that's structurally keeping it out if it isn't at a creative disadvantage? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess, I guess the the the, the latter. I mean, I, I would never deny that it's <laughs> right now we are we are more or less, or for all practical purposes and, and means, shut out of filmmaking, um, and that is because it is a incredibly cost intensive uh, artistic form. Right, we don't really have the backing of elites, um, and you, you, even if you can just find a maverick elite, uh, you need somebody that can write pretty substantial checks and, and take a, take a bet on you. Um, and so I, I think it's, it's not for lack of, um, lack of talent. And I will say, I, I am honestly an optimist about this because I, eventually one of us is going to make a movie. Eventually, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure a bunch of us have already written scripts. Um, and those are going to be passed around and sooner or later, it, it doesn't take much, um, you know, even a, I guess it's funny to kind of take inspiration from from this, but um, you know, one movie that Bog Beef reviewed, uh, Easy Rider, which uh, was a movie from 1968, which which is kind of considered uh, the film that kind of kicked off the American art house cinema, sort of the the generation under the influence. Think about like you know Sam Peckinpah movies, very early Jack Nicholson films, um, dealing with uh, you know. Uh, the spirit of 68 and things like that. Those films were all funded by uh, the monkeys, <laughs> the, the monkeys after they kind of got done with their hit TV show, they had a lot of money and they just wound up kind of making a lot of bets on, on Dennis Hopper and uh, Sam Peckinpah and, and a lot of these other kind of um, people that just got out of film school and were, were certainly outside of the mainstream at that point, they were in a very similar position to Hollywood that we are. Um, you know, somebody like like Edward Hopper giving <laughs> get, being handed a check to to make a movie that he just kind of um, came up with to celebrate counterculture that kicked off um, what 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 became to known as uh, the generation under the influence, and now that's that's considered this very successful artistic um, period in American movie making. Um, and that kind of sensibility eventually did kind of infiltrate Hollywood and the mainstream. So there's nothing that you could say about the left in the 1960s when it comes to filmmaking that was different, I think, conditionally 
than than the right, except that they eventually sort of found those elites that were willing to place a bet on a on a, on a director. Um, yeah, and that that shall happen. It shall happen, or in, I'm calling it here and now. Well, it's, we it's have to be patient. Yeah, I mean, it's also just with the with you know the dearth of interesting material coming out of left, the fact that they're just creatively dead at this point. Eventually, you just if you're if you're looking to, to you know the content mill has to run. Eventually, you have to start feeding something right wing into it just to, just to put anything of value in there. I also wonder, you know, we talked about how different mediums have their time. The novel, you know, kind of waxes and wanes. It moves from 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 one area to another. And I wonder with obviously, of course, people will point to video games, but also, you know, short form content, whether we like it or not, is coming to dominate the the, the minds mm. and, and understandings of young people. Uh, you know, they they just rather watch, you know, a collection of 10 minute videos on YouTube than they want to sit down and watch a, a two, three hour movie. At this point, it feels like they just keep bloating them further and further. It's one of my hatred of, of current movies. I feel like almost every current movie could just be better if you cut it by half an hour. Yeah, and, and and they just refuse to do it. it. Is it could it be that the the movie has just lost its cultural power? I mean, we're always going to have movies in the same way we'll always have novels and things. But yeah. but but in many ways, a novel needs to needed to become a movie for the last twenty or thirty years to really have an impact. And and are we at a point where at this you know the 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 genre or the the medium itself has kind of fallen behind uh, kind of the march of time? And in while it'll still exist it's just not going to have the same impact uh, or creative kind of spark that it had uh, back when it was the, you know, the dominant form of entertainment. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely, I, I, I absolutely see what, see what you mean. I guess I, I wouldn't feel comfortable kind of declaring the decline of, of movies, you know, broadly like that until I've, until I'm actually have, observed a real work of art from a new a brand new novel medium and like there is like you know give where is the citizen kane of tiktok videos <laughs> <laughs> like you know if i mean they're certainly you know drawing people in um they you know they they it wields plenty of of power and influence but uh, does it wield the the sublime does it have um does anybody experience the the holy moments as as Dave the Distributist recently put in one of his his videos on um, on movies that he released last week? I, I don't think I've gotten a holy moment necessarily from um, from from new media, and I think that's what it's going to have to provide before we can really say that you know the time of the movie has has come and gone. The one exception to that, I actually was say like there are some memes that I would absolutely frame. <laughs> and put in my house. I mean, you we should you should have Gio Penichetti on if you're going to talk about that. But I, yeah, you know, like, there are a few a few memes that I. I but even that, even though I I find some some memes to just be you know fantastic, and I wish somebody would, if somebody hasn't already, just create some sort of gallery show and blow up a bunch of memes to the size of like Liechtenstein paintings. And uh, you know, rent out the Metropolitan Museum with them, um, but uh, it is it is sad to think that things have sort of like that revolutionary artistic spirit has like shrunk down to the to the meme. Like the, I think the only way you get the same kind of I don't know, like 
punk ethos that you got from like 90s alternative rock music or like, you know, underground music in, in the 90s. That's really only alive nowadays in in meme culture. But even even the best meme on the planet is just this, you know, it's this tiny little chiclet <laughs> compared well, to like art forms that are more, you know, the thing that that none of these are ever going to have over movies. If you're really going to the movies, if you're going into a cinema to watch something is that it is this it's not just this tiny little video that you play on your phone. It's something that overwhelms you that completely like subsumes your your sensory experience. But I wonder, so, so, and, and this is just me, you know, prattling on about the climb, like an old man on a, on a, you know, porch, but uh, you know, I, I wonder if that's even an option anymore. Right. Because like maybe the movie was a, you know, maybe that cinema experience was itself kind of um, a, a moment in time in which like you had a, a society that was high trust enough to where like, people wouldn't be screaming the whole time or, you know, throwing <laughs> things or talking on their phone or like, you know, goo would be, you know, formed on the, you know, like, yeah, I wonder if you even have like a society that cannot return the shopping cart, cannot enjoy an auteur film. You know what I mean? Like there, there, <laughs> like there, there might be like a limit to like, if, if society can't hold together, whether you can actually have those moments because you know who can even go to a film and make it make through it without someone in the in the audience ruining it at this point. Yeah, I mean I guess I will say, you know, when I think I think movies and like even when movies are successful, they are going to speak to more niche audiences. Like I certainly can't remember like when was the last film that was like like a Star Wars or something like that where it's just like everybody in America went to see it. Everybody agreed. This was like kind of a significant cultural watershed moment. And I do think that that um, kind of mass culture wide national kind of cinema is probably, is probably over the, the, the things that are going to succeed are going to be demonized by one group and um, lionized by another. I think that's, that's definitely true. All right. Well, we've got the questions of the people stacking up, so we're going to switch over to those. But before we do, can you All tell right. people where to find this fantastic film festival? Yeah, yeah. So this is available on Gumroad. Uh, a mere $10 will get you um, over 40 hours of uh, live stream. You, you, get, you can do it in audio or video form. Um, you can listen to it all at your leisure. Um, if you go into if you go go onto Gumroad and type in last things, you'll you'll probably find it right away. But it's lastthings.gumroad.com/l/lps23. Um, and yeah, I hope I hope folks check it out. Um, I tried to price it uh, as 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 low as I could, and uh, I hope people enjoy it. And I definitely plan on on doing it again next year. An incredible value to be sure. I haven't made it through all of them uh, because there are so many, but I've enjoyed all of the ones I have listened to so far. So guys, make sure that you go ahead and check out the film festival. All right, so let's go over to our questions real quick. We got Creeper Weirdo here for $5. Uh, we really need to have a deeper conversation on the secretly based movie. How do we not fall into cope? I mean, yeah, so there's there's always... I guess you people, so the thing that always happens and you hear this with like, I don't know, again, Starship Troopers or Warhammer 40K or things people are like, 
well, it was intended to be a joke. It's intended to be, you know, whatever. And you're mm. reading things into that. You're not getting the joke. They're making fun of you. And, uh, you know, I, I think the, you know, the answer to that is always just the, uh, the giga Chad, you know, smiling. It's like, who cares? Right. Like they, I, <laughs> I don't care what the author meant. I don't care what they were trying to say. If it's cool, if it's based, if it speaks, then it speaks, you know? And so who cares at the end of the day? Uh, you know, I'll vote the death of the author. I don't care. Like this really does not matter. Uh, especially when you have a culture that is entirely built around the subversion and attack of kind of your identity, like you're just going to have to take your W's where they're going to come. And in many yeah. ways, it's interesting to find them growing through the cracks of the concrete than it is to necessarily, you know, uh, find them cultivated somewhere that just doesn't exist. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think I have anything to add to that, to, to that, Oren. That's, that's all great. And I agree. Like, you know, until we can make our own movies, we got to find uh, the base where we can, we, we can find it. I think there's different degrees of it too. Like, you know, it's one thing to maybe just, you know, Oh, that was actually like a kind of cool, very manly masculine character that I uh, thought was, was interesting. And I know I was supposed to despise them, but then there are also just, I think maybe even a deeper observation is, is when like a film almost, a film logically could have progressed toward a more based ending and just swerves, you know, like the, the Batman coming with the Batarang and just, you know, knocking bang, bang out with it in the last five minutes. And it's clear that, you know, the, the more authentically earned ending could have written itself. You know, yeah. that to me has more resonance than just, you know, accidentally based characters. Very true. All right, uh, Bert Hole, the Dirt Knoll for uh, $2. Beaver Gang represents. See, I, I bring Jay Burden on the show one time and his audience invades, and now we're going to have to deal with the Beaver Gang from here on out. But thank you very much, man. Appreciate it. I had no idea that Jay Burden has his own gang. He's got, yes, like, yes. He's got yes. his own groupers. Yeah, they, they roam from stream to stream, uh, you know, and so you, you've got to really watch out. Um. All right, uh, Creeper Weirdo here again. Uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas is about an atheist Jew finding Jesus. Look at uh, look at it and think about it. You know it's true. Uh, of course, the Grinch is wow. a classic. <laughs> Thank you for that. Sir. Well, Creeper Weirdo, we can we'll have you on the next film festival. Yes, he can he can give you those insights into the festival. Uh, and again, Creeper Weirdo here. Blade Runner is superior to 2049. Overrated. Sorry. So I'm, I'm so obviously I think the original Blade Runner is a classic and that kind of puts it I don't know if superior is the right word but it is certainly it has a place of primacy for me I enjoy that movie a lot uh, but I think I the thing for 2049 is really that movie should have been a disaster like when someone said I make there's a Blade Runner sequel coming out I was like oh why please please God no <laughs> like please don't do this. Like, have we not, has enough not been defiled? Have we not seen into the, into the depths of despair enough? And then you get a movie like 2049 and is it perfect? No. Is it, is it better than the original? I don't, I don't think so, but it is really good. And it, it's, it's, it's one of the best movies I think to have been made in a long time. Yeah. And it, it, you know, just visually, uh, you know, the, the, the directing, everything, the acting is amazing but also the fact that it was able to communicate things that you, you otherwise, like I said, probably wouldn't have gotten through in other movies. I think it's really great. I don't think it's overrated at all. Sorry. 
Yeah, no, I I um I love both movies. I think they're both trying to do and say pretty different things despite their kinship. Um, I would just say listen to Astral's review of it. He might it might bring you around. Yeah, that, that's the other thing about it is I liked that while they share universe and obviously they share like a kind of a visual language and things, it is a sequel to be sure. Um, they, they are about very different things. It didn't just try to rehash, uh, you know, the themes of Blade Runner. It went a very different direction in a lot of the ways. And that's that's what I think made it interesting. It didn't totally. It, just yeah. the fact that a, that a kind of a quote unquote reboot of an old film didn't make the main character a woman and kind of like centered masculine issues in the, in the character of Ryan Gosling is kind of unprecedented. And yeah, and we managed to not get a, a star Wars or an Indiana Jones. Yeah. That, that should have been like Ryan Gosling's character should have been played by Scarlett Johansson and it'd right. just be her like, you know, drop kicking people for two hours or something. Yeah. It is amazing that all of those involve Harrison Ford, by the way. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's the one Harrison Ford reboot that didn't completely turn Harrison Ford into a whining, muling, uh, you know, uh, well, I'll, I'll watch my language, but uh, uh, Dylan, Dylan 98 here. Thoughts on Michael Mann's Heat and Collateral. Uh, I love Heat. It's a great movie. Very, you know, very tight action movie. Um, really well done. Uh, I'm trying to remember Collateral. That was the Tom Cruise movie, right? I can, yeah, I actually even I, I I like both of those movies, but I actually think I prefer Collateral. I love I love really. Um, I mean, Michael Mann. We should have mentioned we're talking about masculinity and, and the, you yeah. know, the masculine film, but um, yeah, that's sort of a him and Jamie Fox. Jamie Fox plays the cab driver. Mm. Um, that role was originally going to be played by Adam Sandler, by the way, which Ooh. would have been interesting. Um, <laughs> But uh, I think that's a fantastic movie. Um, definitely about a, I mean, kind of weirdly like a coming of age story in some ways, even though Jamie Foxx is probably in his like 40s when he made that right. movie. Um, beautifully shot too. Um, I, I, I love the film. I remember seeing it in theaters when it came out and enjoying it, but I, I've never revisited it. So I just don't have enough recalled. I've seen Heat several times, but collateral, mm. I've, I've not. All right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. But once again, make sure to check out Last Things Film Festival. It's really good. And he has, uh, you know, yours truly on there going on about Battlestar Galactica. So that's entertaining, if nothing else. If it's your first time coming on the channel, of course, please make sure that you go ahead and subscribe. And if you'd like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you go ahead and uh, follow the Oren McIntyre show on your favorite podcast platform. When you do a rating or review is very much appreciated. Thanks for coming by guys. And as always, I'll talk to you next time.